Working Class Audio is brought to you by Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, Audio-Technica, and Universal Audio. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 179. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 179 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, mixer, composer, and songwriter Daniel Holter, who is also part of two adventures called Wire and Vice and the License Lab. Uh, let's start with Wire and Vice. That is a, uh, a production collective that's located in a 1920s-era post office near Milwaukee's own Harley-Davidson and the original Miller Brewery. And uh, that includes Daniel and some other folks, including uh, most recently a new addition to their crew over there is former WCA alum Justin Perkins, which is really cool. So uh, that's that. There's also the License Lab, which is an independent resource for producers, editors, and music supervisors who need uh, a constant stream of exclusive production music for commercial licensing. So, you know, in a nutshell, music licensing for whatever it is you need. And it's quite an operation that he's got going on there. So very excited to speak with Daniel. So uh, that's that. Yeah. Daniel Holter coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right. Now, you all know I like to turn you on to different things that will enhance your productivity in, uh, in your audio world. And one of those things uh, that we all tend to use is uh, file delivery uh, to deliver mixes or files, stuff like that. And typically we all turn to off-the-shelf products. You know, we, we, we know the names. We know Dropbox, Google, Hightail, you send it, things like that. So you know what I'm talking about. What if somebody actually made a service that was built specifically for folks like us, right? So something where you could upload music and it would uh, make it to the client and have some options with it. And it wasn't such a pain in the ass like some of those other services. Well, I have such a service and that is Swan. And it was created by a team of people headed by Mike Wells of Mike Wells Mastering, former WCA alum, Mike Wells. That's right. We're going to get Mike on the phone and he's going to talk about it, but uh, check it out. It's um, swan.audio. If you go there, sign yourself up for an account. It's a free account. There's some things coming down the pipeline for it, but it's in its early stages. And uh, a lot of questions that I asked of Mike about, you know, well, what about this in the future? And what about that? They're totally working on everything I thought of. So I'm really excited to... Um, to tell you about it, and uh, let's let's get Mike on the line, and he can tell you even more about it straight from the horse's mouth. So uh, let's jump on it. Let's uh, let's call Mike Wells right now. Hello, Mike Wells. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Happy to be here. Yeah. Well, welcome back, and uh, it's been a while since you've been on the show. And uh, listeners, feel free to you know take a, a listen to Mike Mike's past uh interview with me but Mike is coming on for a different reason today to tell us about uh, a new adventure that he's diving into so uh it's called Swan and Mike you want to just take it away and give us the elevator pitch of what it is we're talking about absolutely happy to and thanks for this opportunity to talk about Swan here's sort of the general idea Swan in in essence is an online software app platform for creating solutions for audio engineers and creating solutions for problems that we all face every day. And we're starting off with this first release, which is simplifying the file delivery process. I started this company a little over a year and a half ago. We've been in development for a while. We put out this first release right around the end of the year, and we've been you know, going strong, just kind of slowly building it up since then and getting feedback from all the customers and, and stuff like that. We're all facing common problems every day. And like I said, we start off with this file delivery platform. And if we think about this original feature, which is file delivery, we're all typically using one or more systems to deliver files to our clients. And the problems that we're facing are getting files there and then having the simple ability for clients to listen to those files. So the most common scenario that I find is you've got a client they want to check out the mixes or the masters that you sent, 
You send over WAV files through some mechanism. We transfer Dropbox, Hightail, you name it. And the first thing you hear back from the client is, hey, man, I just want to listen to the files now. Can you send me an MP3? So now you're looking at how am I going to get that over? Well, I got to make some MP3s. I got to upload them in some way. If you're attaching them to email, you've got a limited amount of space. So you're doing a few different emails or you put them up on something like Dropbox. Now someone has to install an app and gain share access through the project, et cetera, et cetera. As the audio engineer, you're going through a lot of hoops, you know, just to get a system for the client to be able to easily listen to the files. So you're adding a lot of time to your daily workflow. So this original feature that we've got with Swan is just creating a very simple playback platform so that you upload WAV files or AIFs, whatever you want to upload, and we generate a player on the back end. So when the client receives an email that Swan will generate to whoever you're sending it to, they have a download link to whatever you sent, like WAV or AIF, and they also have a player in line so they can check things out right away. So if they're at the airport, at the gym, at their friend's house, you, you know, you name it, driving in their car, click on it, start listening to things right away. Let's say you can upload a twenty four ninety six WAV file. Correct. But they can play that on Swan because, as you've explained it to me in the in past conversations, it actually uh, streams the playback only aspect of that twenty four ninety six file as an as an AAC file mm -hmm. through a special codec that you developed. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of questions around what is the player doing and how does the player work? And so it's, a, it's actually a good nugget of information to know. What we're doing is, yes, we are streaming 320 HEAAC data. And we're actually using a codec that we built. We spent well over a year creating this codec and tuning it. And we used a network of mixing and mastering engineers around the world to help us test as we moved along and really make this thing kick ass. So our feedback has universally been, wow, this thing sounds really good. And that's no accident. We spent a lot of time making this codec happen. And so when you upload, we can take up to 2496 data. So when you upload PCM, WAVE or AIF, and what we get is we encode it into this 320 AAC format. And that's what's presented to the player. And that's what streams down, you know, to the, uh, the receiving end, the client, shall we say. But when the client downloads the file, there is no encoding. It's just the straight file that you uploaded. Mm -hmm. Whatever you upload is what they download. The player is just a convenience. It's it's. There's two elements here in case, you know, if you're listening and you're trying to follow along, it's not only a delivery format for the file you're trying to send the client, it's also a playback mechanism for the client to hear rapidly what it is. So maybe mm -hmm. they want to ha have a quick listen in the car on their way home mm -hmm. and they could do that even over their phone. Mm -hmm. But when they get home, they can actually download the full 2496 file Correct. and have the full res file. And this, yeah. you know, could work for mixing or mastering engineers. Yeah. The scenarios are quite broad. Consider someone in the car and I want to listen to the files now. Well, they're going to have to wait till they get home download them from whatever platform onto their computer, bring them into iTunes, iTunes encodes them, sync them with their phone. Now they can walk out to the car and listen to them. And this is immediate. On the engineering end, I would also like to mention, just going full circle on the codec, because this, this question comes up often. Well, I really have an MP3 creation process that I'm happy with. And I don't want, you know, what I have concerns about what's going to happen if I upload an MP3. Any lossy format, MP3, AAC, AUG, you name it. Anything that you want to encode on your end, we pass it through. So if you like your own MP3 encoder, make MP3s, upload them. We just pass them through. So the player just plays your encoded files. We do no transcoding. We do one stage of encoding from PCM, or if you've uploaded a encoded file, we pass it through. So there's no transcoding. There's no degradation of any kind of previously encoded files. So just to kind of recap here, if you're somebody who uses Dropbox, Hightail, any of those type of services to deliver files to clients for approval, this is a better version of that made for audio people by audio people. And it allows you to uh, send the files give your client the ability to play those files uh, for a quick reference, a quick listen. And right now uh, it's free mm -hmm. and there will always be a, a free tier. Eventually there will be uh, a potential subscription thing available with maybe some branding, some extra bits and pieces correct. that people are requesting. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. You got it. Everything that we're doing 
is for our market. So if you think about in the software world, there's two terms. There's broad and shallow and there's narrow and deep. So if you think about existing file sharing, you know, file management, online cloud systems, they're all in a broad and shallow model because they want to appeal to graphic designers and mechanics and audio engineers and office, you know, startups, you name it. So their feature set is very simple and it can apply to anyone. Then you take a look at the narrow and deep model where you're you're providing a service, but you're providing very specific features to one market, and that's what we are. We're creating, you know, tools and solutions that solve problems that I have, you know, as a mastering engineer, as my friends do as mixing engineers. I built this thing myself a couple of years ago as a very simple HTML system, but I had to hand code every page, but it was working. It was great. And I had some friends say, what's this thing you're doing? And, oh, well, I'm doing it. And it just kind of matured into, why don't we make a product out of this? So that's where the original idea came from. And then taking a look further, it's like, well, what other problems can we solve? And so as we move forward, we've got a, we have a very robust list of where we're going direction wide. And the, the really great news about the feedback that we're getting from everybody right now and the requests that we're getting, like you said, Matt, branding space, duration of transfers, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's all the direction we're heading in. I'm really happy to see that the majority of requests that are coming in are in line with what we're doing. And I don't think, again, that that's an accident because these are all things that I would want as, you know, as an audio engineer. So all of the other audio engineers that I know are coming back with, you know, the same feedback. Hey, can we get this? You bet, man. That's on the plate. It's coming. Yeah. And I actually tried it out. I uh, When I interview somebody, they record their end of the interview and they send me the file. Well, I did a test where I had one of the people I interviewed send me the file over Swan and I could rapidly check the playback to see what the the general audio quality was. And once I heard that, I thought, oh, okay, great. They did a great job. Now download it, add it to my file and put the show together. It was a great, great uh, experience using it. So where people can actually sign up and give Swan a test run for their own system and get hooked up to hear about future updates, what's the address for people? It's www.swan.audio. So rather than .com, it's dot, it's dot yeah, .audio. You got it. It's dot .audio. Absolutely. And it's free to register. Uh, you do have to register to send files. You don't have to register to receive files. It's a two gigabyte upload limit, seven day transfer period. Again, people are asking like, well, can I manage all that? Yes, absolutely. As we move forward into like a subscription model, for instance, that will all be available to manage on the, uh, on the, the user end who has a subscription. We will have a free tier at all times. And what you're seeing right now will be that free tier as we move forward. Right now, we're almost around the corner from a small update, which is going to have a a bunch of very small things that improve uh, the experience and add a couple of small tweaks that's coming, you know, within a few weeks, uh, excuse me, a few weeks, two months. And that will basically be the completion of what the free tier will be. The tool right now has three modes. I wanted to mention to you because uh, you know about this uh, map, but this, it's good to know about this. When you upload files through Swan, you'll notice a radio list of buttons at the bottom. And that is the three modes that you can send files in. The first mode is a download-only mode where there is no player generated, and that becomes a very, pretty much what you'd see everywhere else in the world. You know, upload files, someone gets the link, download files, that's it. The middle option is download and play, and that's pretty much what everybody's using right now, download and play. And you can upload the files, the player is generated, at the bottom of the player is a download link. On the far right, we have a mode called play-only. This is a very interesting mode because it serves a lot of different purposes. What's happening here is you upload files, the player is generated, and there is no download button. And well, why would you want that? And there's a lot of scenarios where this applies. For instance, let's say you're a mix engineer, you're working on rough mixes. You want people to check it out, but you don't want them to download it because you're just getting started. I have a, a scenario with a very high profile live sound engineer, and the band needs to check out the show the night before, go through dailies. And, you know, and consider changes for the next day. So he's uploading mixes of the show. There's no reason for anybody to download anything. You know, they listen to it and it's disposed of in seven days. He knows that there's no security issues. It goes away. Again, there's a lot of scenarios here. One other on sort of the, the client management side is considering you're working with a new client, for instance, you're kicking off a project uh, or in mastering, you're doing a single and you present it in play only mode, but there is no download button. So you haven't given away the baby. You know, the client has checked out, they like it, everything is like, that's great, let's go. So, okay, 
well, let's go ahead and send over the funds and then I will give you a download link. So it's a way to manage client process because we all have that unfortunate situation that happens from time to time. So here's a way for you to manage that process without giving the WAV file away and then saying, hey, you know, we're, we're chasing money. We all have that experience. So this is a way to you know, make that a little easier for everybody. Those are the three modes. What I always tell folks is grab a couple of files, send yourself three transfers, one in each mode. You will receive them. You'll see how the modes work. That's a great way to get familiar with it. And then from there, you can start using it to send client files. That's great, man. That That's a, a handy feature. And that's one of the, the first things that attracted me to Swan is, is that ability to restrict download, but allow playback so clients can approve things. And also, it, it what's great is, is you don't keep piling up all these different versions Bingo. that people have to keep track of. And also... You mentioned the two gigabyte uh, limit, and some people are like, well, that's that's not enough for me. Well, keep in mind, this is not a Dropbox type scenario. This is a delivery system. It's not a storage system necessarily. Correct. Is correct. that correct? That is correct. Absolutely. So most people, you know, are not even going to hit that two gigabyte limit mm-hmm. in delivering of, of mixes for uh, for their clients. So. I think that's appropriate. And if you're, you know, we're not doing multi-tracks, right? We're delivering stereo files. So even if you're working at 2496 and you're delivering a record, you're not going to hit the two gig limit. You know, you'll be able to send the record over. You won't have to go through any kind of, you know, bit reduction process. If you're really into the dither that you're using and as a mastering engineer, actually choosing which dither is a big part of my process. So I do go down to that stage and then send those. The encoding happens. It's a faster upload. And I'm also considering that step in my in my signal path. So how you want to use it as far as like if you're sending up full res or if you're sending down 1644, you know, it's really up to you. I got a lot of film guys using it. They work at 2448, you know, they're sending over roughs, you know, to production houses for trailers or that kind of stuff. And, you know, they're loving it. 2448. There you go. I do have one. um, This is again, a TV commercial house. And one of the things that that this uh, chief engineer at their studio is loving it for is he's having his composer network send him their compositions through Swan. So that way, when he's at his desk working on different products for different commercials, he can just listen to the rest that the composer network he's working with are using. So he's the engineer that receives you know, the final um, multi-track, but that way he's not downloading roughs, importing them into Pro Tools, setting up the project and listening to it. So it's Here's a case where the engineer is saving time, you know, by having his clients upload roughs, he can listen to them, give feedback, move on with his day, you know? So it's, it's really interesting that I've, I, I'm hearing a lot of different people from different industries, you know, all audio engineers finding a way where this improves and streamlines their daily workflow. And that's the goal of Swan is just creating tools that makes our life easier. So once again, it's swan.audio. If you mm-hmm. want to check that out and uh, sign up for an account and stay up to date on what uh, future releases will bring. I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, so Mike, great work here, man. And I'm really happy that you're you're creating something that is super useful for all of us. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for having me on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Swan.audio from Mike Wells. So uh, thanks again, Mike. Thank you. Mike Wells telling us about Swan. Really excited about this. Um, I'm going to put a link in the show notes for you in case you forget. Check it out, Swan. All right, just a reminder to head on over to gearsluts.com and check out the subform that Working Class Audio sponsors called Audio Life. Also, I want to encourage you to head on over to uh, Universal Audio's website. I don't know if you've seen it, but Universal Audio has recently released a new product. It's called the UAD2 Live Rack. It's real-time UAD effects processing, uh, purpose-built for live sound. Really, really interesting. 16-channel MADI effects processor that allows live sound engineers to craft studio-quality mixes using real-time UAD processing and industry-leading UAD plugins, uh, including Antares Autotune Real-Time right out of the box. And uh, this is really cool. You can chain up to four of these units together for up to 64 channels of processing. And it's got redundant power supplies built in. This is really cool. Be sure to check that out at Universal Audio's website. That's uaudio.com. And and click on UAD accelerators, and you'll get a list of everything there. And there it is, UAD2 Live Rack. That's really cool. All right. Well, let's get to it. Let's jump into this interview here with Daniel Holter here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. 
Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's get everybody up to speed as far as what your main gig is these days, which is the license lab. Yeah, that's what the most visible gig. I, I refer to my gig as like, I make records. It just so happens that most of them are ones you don't know that I did because they're kind of invisible and on television stations and things like that. Um, but my main gig is making records. It just so happens that most of them are finding a home at the license lab. And I've got artist stuff that I do that is uh, less visible, but the main thing is uh, making records. Tell us more about the license lab. Well, first of all, what is the license lab for those that don't know? The license lab is a uh, production music company. So we've got catalogs of music that are available for licensing, television networks, production companies, video editors, movie trailers, things like that. Um, we've got international representation all around the world with sub-publisher network, and we're engaged in adding to our catalogs. We've built about 10 catalog brands that we're adding to all the time, uh, original music that we own and control and can license exclusively. How did you get into that? I learned about production music in a in a weird way with a, a former boss. This is a long time ago. This is 1994, 24 years ago. And he was a voiceover artist who was basically ripping production music options at the time. He was saying, there's nothing good in the market. We should make our own. And of course, I'm 24 years old and saying like, what's production music? I've never even heard of this. You know, I thought I was going to be editing voiceovers for the rest of my life and making records. And I did a little research and come to find out there's this whole world of production music. And then 94, this is pre-internet, pre, you know, I mean, we had like AOL, but that was it. And in doing a bunch of research, found out that uh, he was right. A whole lot of production music sucked. So we kind of jumped onto that really early. I latched onto it and just never let go. I was like, okay, here's a place where I can make music and uh, make a living. And uh, it turned out to be a pretty great uh, run. I've had been at it for 20, 25 years now, or 20, 23 years, 24 years. Yeah. So I got into it by accident just by hearing this guy talk about it. And then um, he ended up uh, firing me a year later, which is the best thing that ever happened to me. It was great. I think back on how miserable I would be working for him now, and it would it would be uh, remarkable. I'm very grateful to have happened across this. This is your company. Yeah, I've got uh, some investors that are a part of the thing, but I've been, the License Lab is about seven years old, and I've been doing this for other companies. The License Lab basically came about because I got sick and tired of being told no by big corporate publishers. You know, there's a bunch of things that I wanted to do as a production music company, and things move a lot slower at the corporate level. So I had deals previously with Warner Chapel and Sony ATV, uh, Universal, BMG. And those all came to a close in 2010. Uh, a few years before that, I, two of them closed up. And then in 2010, I got out of my, out of my deal with um, Sony ATV and thought if I was going to do a company that basically did things differently than all the bigs have been doing, what would I do? And that became the license lab. So instead of being a supplier for all these majors, I wanted to build a company that would actually compete with them instead of supplying them. There's a lot of mystery to some of us around licensing and publishing and how does one truly make money at that? And where is the money made? Explain it to me like I'm an elementary school kid. To use music in a video production basically is the main part of our business, is synchronizing music with visuals. And to do that, the uh, current U.S. law requires that a payment be made, that there's a synchronization fee. So we are engaged in the process of creating music for which we charge synchronization fees for the rights to put our music in those productions. Um, if somebody was going to get started in it, and there's a new company every day launching in the production music space, it's as simple as making your music available online in some sort of searchable form. And people can reach out, clients can reach out and say they want to synchronize your music and you can agree to a price. That's the, the biggest uh, variable in the whole industry is there's no um, guideline for you know, what the pricing could be. So it can be whatever the two parties agree, unless you're, there's some countries overseas where some of those rates are more standardized, but here in the States, it's all negotiable and you can get, uh, you can have one album online and be licensing your music and you can have a catalog of hundreds of albums online and build a company around that form of income. What other, how, how, how further can I explain that on the elementary side? Cause I feel like I'm already past elementary school there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. We can, we can go to middle okay, school right. now. I'm gonna I'm gonna walk myself verbally through this. So you create the music, you make it available online in a searchable form. What? How do you give yourself the edge so that you can compete with bigger companies or other companies? What? Where's the sense of competition there? Where? How does that work? Sure, um, it's actually a great question because I think a lot of people try to get into this space because they think it's kind of. Uh, 
the music industry's equivalent of Bitcoin or something where everybody's on it because everybody's on it and this is where you can make money. And the reality is you got to be really smart about entering the market, right? You have to think about what clients are A, asking for and wanting and what they can't get at any of the majors because basically every form of music is available for licensing. You can go online and it's not uh, dissimilar to stock photography. If you're looking for stock photography, you can find a photo of a chimpanzee eating a mango uh, while he's sitting in a tree and you can find 50 options for that and have you know all kinds of different places you can license that image so if you want to um, make a dent in this industry in the in the stock music space i think you should have a million images of you know chimps eating mangoes on trees and have like oh here's a bunch of different kinds of trees and different kinds of mangoes and different kinds of fruit as opposed to trying to compete with here's every animal under the sun eating every type of uh, fruit on all these types of trees there's all these companies that already do those things so the key is differentiating yourself create stuff that people are asking for they, they can't get elsewhere. There's people trying to do it through genre, through doing music that isn't available, that's maybe trendier than a lot of the big corporations are doing. And then there's also application or uh, the the means by which the music would be used. I've got friends in New York who have a company focused almost exclusively, their history has been focused on promo music and they made their bones in television promos. Well, the structure for that stuff is completely different than songwriting. Um, just like friends in LA who have movie trailer music companies. The structure for a movie trailer is completely different than us writing a song and putting a band together. Uh, so understanding that, knowing that, creating what the market needs and wants is how to differentiate yourself when you get into it, which can be as simple as you've got an album done as a band or an artist and you make it available for licensing. I just think your chances of success in this industry are a lot greater if you think about what people will actually need and want and are willing to pay for. As opposed to just expecting people to, you know, license uh, music that your family says is amazing and that your friends say is really cool and you can fill a club, you know, it's a completely different business. How do you choose what you're ultimately going to create? I'm uh, a bit philosophical about this, much to the chagrin of some of my corporate partners over the years. I think the world is better served if you create music that you're passionate about. I think um, clients will be able to tell if what you're creating is something that's genuine and is an actual uh, creative output. No different than if you're a songwriter or in a band and you're trying to be something that you're not just to sell records. It's no different than the licensing space where it's best to be the, the most pure version of yourself that you can be and hope to identify people that want that thing. Um, I think that's a pretty um, unique uh, approach to figuring out what you're going to create. Now, I mean, I don't know. If you're if a pure commercial play, the ability to provide upbeat, acoustic, happy music is generally kind of main street in this industry, right? It's like if you want to find a lot of people who just need a lot of filler music, generally speaking, people need a lot of stuff that's acoustic and upbeat and happy. So there's 3 million tracks of that available online right now. So you could do you could do 20 more of those and maybe people use them, but I think your chances are better if you do something that's a little more unique, you know. I haven't seen it in a while, but it seems like we went through a period where every time I turned on the damn television, there was a commercial that was upbeat acoustic music with the damn glockenspiel going ding, 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 <laughs> you know, it just seemed like every other commercial was like that. It blew my mind. It was like, if I hear one more Glockenspiel song, I'm going to vomit. Uh, welcome to my world. Yeah, that's the whole thing. <laughs> Is it, we're just through a phase of um, everybody wants, you know, foot stomps and hand claps and all that. <laughs> <laughs> Generally speaking, our industry follows trends that are available in popular music. And when things get popular, that, you know, that stuff bleeds into the license space and people want more of that. How do you compete when the ad agencies themselves have in-house studios, writers? How do you even break through that? Uh, do you mean as like an individual composer or do you mean as a company that has a catalog? As a company that has a catalog, it seems that it would be virtually impossible to get music to any of the top ad agencies in the country when they themselves are doing what you do in-house? I think a lot of times um, their deadlines are such that they need options right away. You know, the, the ability to go even make something overnight sometimes isn't enough time for them. They've got a last minute change with a director who wants to hear 10 examples of different forms and um, our ability to go to the shelf and pull those and send them as a, a part of a search right away is a, a real differentiator. Mm -hmm. There's also, if you've got a team in-house who's a single-minded uh, vision, or I should say um, 
who only has one perspective, we have the advantage of having a team of people. We've got, you know, 30 or 40 main composers that we work with. So we've got the ability to have multiple perspectives on something instead of just one. If they do need something overnight, we can turn that around as well on a custom basis. We don't do a lot of custom music ourselves, but a lot of people in our industry uh, have that as a part of their their feature set when they're talking with agencies. Do you have uh, composers that are outside outside of where you're at and you're in milwaukee yeah, yeah i'm based right? in milwaukee we've got composers okay. all around the world uh, a big chunk of them here and nashville but we've got people uh submitting music from all over the audience who's listening can't see this but you're currently in a studio and it's your studio right. i assume mm-hmm. tell me about that aspect of it could you get away with doing this gig without having a studio could you just be the general contractor and farm out all the work. I think there's a whole lot of our industry that do that. I think, uh, I think uh, quite a few people in this space are really accountants who just move music and take a slice of the money. Uh, I I refuse to have my office be uh, an office. That's why I'm in a studio. Um, I I worked with and for too many people who who, who view what we do as it's just a commodity it's just a thing that they may as well be moving soybeans or something you know so being in a studio for me is is vital i i I don't want to be the guy who has an office and it's just filling out spreadsheets and meeting with bankers and all that it's that's a a big part of our industry and uh i've made decisions that are not in my best immediate financial interest all the time because i i have to be making the music and i want to work with people who have to make music you know I, people that are, get in this business for the wrong reasons uh are a real challenge to be uh creative with long term and th- those people are typically more comfortable in the boardroom and more comfortable at at panel discussions about the accounting practices of metadata and all this stuff and i just go and now those things are necessary they're a, b- a big a big part of our industry but there's a reason you're we're having this conversation i'm sitting in the studio this is the room i spend all day every day in who's responsible for all the mixing or mastering duties one of your former guests actually is our mastering guy justin perkins of mystery room he's actually got a room in our facility here he's a tenant of mine here at the studio that's right i saw his post recently so he's the he's the man for all of our license lab output Uh, some of the records that i make artist records are mastered by other people but many of them are also mastered by justin he's extraordinary at at all that stuff he has a particular gift on the license lab side because he, um, there's so much that goes into production music when it comes to uh, really dialed in metadata and the delivery specs around the world, multiple formats. Uh, Justin's got a really great head for all that stuff. And having all that be on autopilot where I don't have to worry about it is exactly um, why he's uh, the guy handling everything that comes out of the license lab. But we've got the mixing side is handled by uh, our structure at the License Lab is actually we have a few different content partners who produce music and they have groups of composers and mixers and editors that they work with. One of those content partner pools happens to be my production company that I make records as. So for those records, I'm usually mixing, always producing on the records that I provide to the License Lab. My same role is uh, duplicated in multiple content partners. It's not just me. And we've got teams, like I said, in multiple cities where they've got their own composers, they've got their own mixers, um, but they're turning that stuff in short of mastering. So when it shows up at our inbox, um, we have a workflow that includes Justin that, you know, puts, we go through quality control and all of our stems, all of our versions, all of our edits, and then um, it goes to mastering and he puts the finishing touch on it for delivery to all of our networks. Has the License Lab been in existence for over 20 years? No, License Lab is seven years old. Yeah, we launched in 2012 officially. I think we had like a soft launch at the end of 2011. You know, I don't want to do a uh, uh, congressional investigation of your <laughs> of your your business entity, but can you give us a little perspective of what that looks like? Uh, sure. Um, I had been uh, acquaintances with another gentleman in the industry for a long time who was running a major, and I met him at a trade show. We ended up joining forces. He was handling uh, the business side, and I was handling the music side. And about a year in, we wanted to take it quite a bit further than the two of us could realize on our own. So we went and had an investor round where we actually filed 
papers with the state and had a window of like, okay, here's where we value the company. Here's what each share of the company we believe is worth. There's a three or six month, I forget how long the window is, uh, time where you can make presentations and it's all regulated by the state of Wisconsin. Um, so you've got the ability to accept money on behalf for shares in the company. And we owe these investors annual reports and, you know, we can, it's all accountable and, and uh, filed with the state and everything. In contrast to my first library that I did 20, 20 years ago, where I went to my parents and I said, hey, I need some money to do a library. I went to a friend of mine, hey, I need some money to do a library. They both handed me checks because they believed in me. My first deal, I, I ran for 13, 14 years on a handshake with with those three people, my two parents and my, and my dearest friend. Um, and they both made out very well over 14 years. And when we got bought out by Warner Chapel, um, they each got a big check and that was all by handshake. Your your first company got bought out by Warner Chapel. Yeah, first catalog. Yeah, it was. I wouldn't call it a company, but it was a brand and a catalog. And, and because my company still exists and is producing music for others, but the first brand, okay. the first uh, product that we that we developed, and um, I had a distribution deal for a long time, and the distributor got acquired by Warner Chapel, and then Warner Chapel bought us, uh, bought our our right to the the other portion of it. So then you started the license lab. Then I, following that, or at, right at the end of that, I had a deal with Universal BMG. And then out of that, I started, I thought I wanted to start a company uh, called Burst Labs. Interestingly, a combination of kind of both the worlds I was running in, my production company and this lab idea. Burst Labs, I uh, sold on a cold call to Sony ATV. I called them up and I got, I was in eight or 10 months in. We were licensing some stuff on our own, but I realized that's, I didn't want to run the business. I just wanted to make the music. So I called the head of Sony ATV uh, just out of the blue. And I said, I had like a 10 or a one minute pitch, 10 seconds is probably a little short, but I just said, you should check out our website. If you get what we're doing, I think we should talk. That's it. I don't have really a pitch for you. You should check it out. And it wasn't as arrogant as that sounds now. It was a little just kind of, I I know he's got too many things coming up across his desk. So, and he called me back 10 minutes later and said, when can you be in New York? I want to talk to you. So um, (laughs) it was great, but I I had made a lot of mistakes prior to that point. And I, I knew what I was doing by that time. And I was in business with them for three years and then uh, exercised an option to get out of that deal and get, get bought. And I took that money and started the license lab. So it was post three other major deals. Um, I took the, the funds from those, started the license lab. And then about a year into the license lab, realized if I'm going to be serious about this, we need to go get some investor money. And that's when we had this, this round of investment from friends and family here in the state. What is your primary instrument? I'm a drummer, just like you. Ah. Yeah, I, I learned okay. piano first. My mom was a piano teacher for many, many years. And I just was drawn to uh, drums in a way that I wasn't uh, piano. Although I still love piano, I own too many pianos and I, uh, I'm horrible at it, but I do love it. I would say if I were to be in a band and get paid, it would be as the drummer. That's the only instrument I'm having any kind of performance competency on. So your music theory is strong or not? Yeah, I, I would say I've got, I, most of the people I work with are way better at it than me, but I'm, I'm certainly conversant. Yeah. Let's say you're a chef and you think I like to cook. I'm going to open a restaurant and a lot of them fail. Uh, you're a guy that likes to deal in music. And so you've opened up, I don't know if this analogy is flying, but I love it. <laughs> you've actually. Opened, yeah. You, you've kind of opened up the restaurant version. So of music, and it seems to be working for you. And you mentioned a couple mistakes and some mistakes in the past, but you've, you seem to have a track record of good success. Yeah. I've had a really good run. I've been really fortunate. I've got people who have believed in me. I know nobody's going to work harder than me. And I think the people that have invested in me know that. That's one reason, you know, when you're when you're around me and near my energy, it's pretty obvious I'm not going to give up. Um, I'm, I want to succeed. I, I have this phrase I've been using um, of late where it's like, I don't, I don't need everyone else to lose. I just know I'm going to win. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, we can all win. That's fine. But I know I'm not going to lose. And I, I know I want to win desperately. And, uh, and yeah, I guess a quarter century on, it's been it's been a pretty good run. Real quick, just to touch on your chef analogy, I love the chef analogy because the the cooking thing is so apt for what we do as a living, right? Making records, the blending and the, oh, yeah. all of it. And so I think if people want to think about that just a touch further, it, I think I'm a chef who still makes meals for people when they stop in my little shop. And I don't ever want to stop cooking. But I also have this business Monday to Friday when I'm not open for dinner where I figured out how to sell all my recipes, right? So I've got like these books filled with stuff that it's available on Amazon digital books. You can go read the book anytime you want. 
I'm also making meals when people stop by. I think that's a lovely uh, analogy, actually. Um, I love. I that. think so. The cooking thing has always worked for me as a comparison. Yeah, it's really it's really appropriate for what we do. Uh, also, building houses. Another one I use. Yeah, the workshop analogy. Yeah. I just you know I like the idea of people when they come here. I I always wanted people to to want to work with me as a carpenter, not to rent my workshop. You know what I mean? I see what you're saying, yeah. Or to rent my kitchen versus hiring me as a chef. Like, I want to be the chef. I want to be the carpenter. I don't really want to rent my kitchen. I don't really want to rent my workshop. You know, sometimes we do in this business, but, um, and that's, those are valid careers. I just knew early on that that's not the, the pure service mode and kind of equipment rental business model um, or space rental. Uh, that's just not, it was never that interesting to me. I, I wanted to be creatively collaborative with people. Okay, so- Let's let's look at a different aspect of this. How do you the decisions you make about the studio space you have, the equipment you purchase, how much money you spend on microphones and all the gear? How do you make your decisions so it makes sense with the business, or <laughs> are, or are you still influenced like the rest of us? Like I got to have that. Um, two new poll texts just showed up today. So you're picking the perfect, oh perfect question for me to, yeah. or the perfect day to ask that question. <laughs> I just unboxed them and I couldn't get them out fast enough and, and get them plugged in and warmed up so we can try them out. I'm the wrong guy to ask that question if you're looking for <laughs> conservative financial advice. I think I have gotten, um, I, here, I'll tell you what hasn't done me wrong. Uh, investing in quality tools has never served me wrong. Investing in, um, the stuff that enables us to do what we do has always paid dividends. And I'm really glad that early on I didn't know any better because I lived paycheck to paycheck, right? For a long time, like all of us, and was in debt for a long time. I mean, still am for in a, a lot of different ways, but not that kind of destructive early career debt where you're like, screw it, I'm going to put, you know... Anything I want on the credit card, and then you forget you have to pay bills the next month. You know, I see you that, smiling in yeah, affirmation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we we know the, that feeling. I I've done a pretty good job of. Um, I think when I launched the License Lab seven years ago, maybe leading into that, eight or nine years ago, I got pretty serious about avoiding forums online because I realized at one point there were a lot of people. Uh, talking about a lot of stuff that they didn't know anything about or were pretending they knew stuff about. And I wanted to be the guy doing the work, not talking about doing the work. And I wanted to be the guy that had the equipment, not was talking about where my equipment was not good enough. You know, the reality is these days that the tools we have available, it's mind blowing. There's, there's no reason you can't make a legitimate record on a laptop and a mic preamp. Like that's with the, with an SM7 in front of you. There's no reason you can't make a record with that, the most basic setup. And so I think, um, I love gear just as much as anybody, but I think there's constructive debt and destructive debt. I think you've got a plan to pay off uh, things that you go into debt for because it's a business inv uh, investment or venture. I think if you've got a plan and you've got a competent bookkeeper, it makes a lot of sense. I think you know, the, very few people have the ability to shell out $100,000 for a console, but there are people that probably need that console as a part of their business plan. And it's no different than any other asset that needs to be um, capitalized and and uh, depreciated and all those things, all the words that I I detest talking about in the creative space, you know, but it's it's a part of our uh, a part of our industry, and you got to figure out how to make it work. If you're gonna you're gonna build houses, you need a, a a good table saw, you know. Yeah. Well, okay. So, what about the space? Did the space come before the license lab or after? Space came before the license lab. I've had my production company and my studio here uh, for about eighteen years. Um, I actually, when I moved back from Los Angeles to Milwaukee, I was in Los Angeles until about 2000 and I was, I was raised in Milwaukee. So I was coming home cause I had a young family at the time and, um, wanted to raise them here instead of LA. I was, uh, at a post house in town, um, who remain uh, friends of mine this 18 years ago, I, I moved in and did custom work for their ad clients for a year and just knew that I, if I ever wanted to, uh, be building something uh, on my own, my own space, I needed to find a building, but I didn't know where I would find one. And I overheard a conversation at a music festival about this building that was available and had a recording studio in it. And I was like, well, I better go check that out. And I, drove over here and called the number. And it, it, the conversation I heard was that they were having trouble selling the place. He was never going to sell it. He's asking too much. I'm like, well, I should check this place out. 
I called the number when I came over to the neighborhood and the guy was like immediately rushed over here. He <laughs> was like, I'll be right there. I'll be right there. I'll show you the space. So I was like, well, that's a good sign as a buyer. Like they're that desperate to sell it, you know? Um, walked around inside. There was no recording studio here. There was a projection room and a conference room that had a mixer in it. Like <laughs> that was the recording studio. <laughs> and there was like a, a art gallery and a real estate agent and a civil war or a revolutionary war costume shop in the back. It was just a mishmash of like horrible uh, oh, and, and a, uh, a print shop, just a bunch of stuff. But what was cool was that this building was the original post office from 1920, 1922 for this little village outside Milwaukee. Um, and I thought it was this really interesting history and a cool look for the building. And uh, I actually had talked with Russ Berger at Russ Berger Design Group in Dallas for a few times, a few other places that I looked at. He actually talked me out of two other buildings. That, that guy is, the, uh, I love his integrity for his work. He was like, you don't want to buy this building. This is, I could make hundreds of thousands of dollars on you and you will hate me forever. <laughs> you cannot buy this building. So when I told him about this one, he flew to town. We looked at it, put a site plan together. And he was like, one of his team members actually said to me, if you don't buy this building and put a studio in it, I'm going to. It's, it's perfect. Because the neighborhood is, it, is now, it's even extraordinary. But back then, it was kind of an idyllic neighborhood for a studio. It's like walkable, free parking. There's a, there's a river and a park. Um, there's no structural columns every eight feet. Just kind of a perfect situation. So got the building 18 years ago and, and put a studio in it without really knowing what I was doing other than I wanted to hire somebody legit to help me with the basics. And then 12 years later, the license lab yeah, was a thing. So I was making records in here and, and making uh, content for other major publishers for a long, for over a decade before we launched the license lab. And now I've wow. got, now I've got this, this entity, Wire and Vice, which is the facility. And we've got Justin in mystery room down the hall. We've got a filmmaker here who's a tenant, Steven Spurlock. Um, we've got another producer who just moved back from LA as well a couple of years ago, Nick Rad. He's doing, uh, he did the uh, Skillet record and Jen's record from Skillet. Um, major stuff going on, really cool. And it's a it's really neat collaborative kind of environment with multiple production teams and, and cool things going on. And then there's this license lab component, which is kind of the most visible nationally and internationally. But weirdly, when you show up, it's the thing you wouldn't even see because it's just, you know, computers and, and my uh, uh, my team sitting in their office is another tenant here. Basically, the license lab is another tenant of ours. So, yeah, really, really neat situation that I happened into that I got very lucky. So you with. own this building? Yeah, but I bought the building with the help of the Small Business Administration uh, 18 years ago. Oh, yeah. So smart. Well, I, I, I don't know. It was in hindsight, but I wish I could claim I was being that smart. I It really was just, uh, get back to that concept of just, uh, I'm going to win. It, I'm uh, going to sink my teeth in and make it work. It was a part of that mentality. It wasn't so much uh, the prescience of good planning or anything, you know? So you have a family. Yeah. Yeah. I've got uh, three kids. My youngest is, we just are visiting colleges now with my youngest, which is crazy to think about. So what are their ages? Almost 17, 19, and 21. Wow. Yeah. You're going to be an empty nester. My wife and I are uh, ecstatic about it. Yeah. We're, <laughs> we, we love them to death and we can't wait for them to start their lives. We're so um, proud of them and love hanging out with them, but we really have things that we want to do on our own. So my, when I moved back from LA was with the kid's mom, we, we got divorced a couple months after moving or a year after moving back from LA. It was just kind of a, uh, there's a lot going on right there in, in my personal life. But I knew in a lot of ways, that's why all of this happened because I wouldn't have this building or this career or even be in this industry, the music production in the production music industry if it weren't for my desire to be around my kids, you know, so we got, I've been divorced for 16, 17 years and didn't want to be that dad that was gone in LA making records or traveling all over. I was like, well, this is a thing I can do here and be in the same city where my kids are. Um, that was really intentional and a part of kind of the the way the business has been structured and, and located here for a long time. So we talk about being an empty nester. It's actually, there's a lot wrapped into that joke because we're, you know, my new wife and I now, we've been, Kate and I have been married for uh, just about eight years and she's just finishing her master's degree. She's way smarter than I am and is like in demand with all, she's in, she's in the part of the, the business world that has a heart. You know, she's like uh, everything we're not when it comes to like, thinking about our own projects and our own that she's out with this big heart, like trying to save the world and is in the education world and nonprofits. And she's extraordinary with all that stuff. So we're looking at options on the West coast. We're looking at, she can have 
uh, job. And she's going to have offers, out the, you know, all over the place. We're actively having conversations about like, should we move? Do we move? We've got this building. We live in the city that we love, but we got a lot of opportunity right now. And we've been holding off on those decisions until the kids are not here because I want to be here for the kids, you know? Hey, I want to give a shout out to one of our sponsors who helps make the Working Class Audio podcast possible. I'm talking about Roswell Pro Audio, run by my friend Matt McGlynn, who you might know, of course, from Recording Hacks fame. Matt and his team over at Roswell Pro Audio make some great mics priced at what I would call working class prices. So uh, stop on by Roswell Pro Audio and... You can get free shipping when you go to the website, but if you really want to help the cause here at Working Class Audio, when you do check out and purchase a microphone, use the shipping code WCA free ship on checkout, and that'll help us just know that you came because you heard about Roswell Pro Audio here on the Working Class Audio podcast. So, yeah, stop on by RoswellProAudio.com. I don't want to bring you down, but take me back to that period of time, uh, going through a divorce, being in audio, having kids. Can you tell me a bit about navigating that? Oh man, that's been, that's been a long time because it's been, that's a long time ago. feels like a whole nother life ago. Navigating that, what was a real, it's a challenge to be creative when you're emotionally taxed. You know, that's the real big thing there was a period there that was it was really dark and and i'd moved out and i've got the the thing the survival skill is really just having good people around you that can help you navigate really dark times and especially as creative people i think our sensitivity is kind of off the charts when it comes to situations affecting us and impacting our motivation and our ability to get out of bed in the morning you know uh, we're seeing that just recently with um the slate of of suicides in our industry it's um the, the mental health side of this business and things like family stress and things like you know emotional distress um are are not dealt with as openly as they should be i, I was never quite so dark i'm not trying to compare or put myself in the in the there's some people that are really dealing with significant challenges on a daily basis and this was just a season of my life a long time ago but I will say the ability to call on friends in those times that understand what you're going through on both sides is just, um, it's uh, immeasurable. It's just everything, you know, having people that care about you, mm-hmm. affirming that that we're not, because we our career is so isolated, you know this, you know this, we, we're like alone in a room most of the time. And having people that you can relate to and support and be supported by is just a big part of surviving things like that. And we're all going to deal with that stuff. There's, there's stuff that's going to come up that um, isn't all just making records. And I mean, I think a lot of, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of people who think our industry is just all bright lights and big city and, you know, autograph sessions. And it's just like, there's nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to making records, you know? Was there anything that you did to, to actively get yourself out of that dark period? And, and just for clarity's sake, you were married, you had three kids, yeah. then you went, you moved back to Wisconsin and you got divorced. Yeah, I got divorced right after um, our third kid was born. I was out of the house like six months later, which is obviously not related. I mean, we had our own issues that had nothing to do with the kids. But So what are the strategies that you used to stay in audio and music and stay clear-headed while dealing with the emotional turmoil oh, of man. a divorce? Uh, with three kids, I mean that's that's a tough one. Yeah, yeah, it was tough. I, friends were were everything. I had a couple dear friends that um, that really stepped in and and uh, supported me. And there's also the fact that I'm not good at anything else. I don't have a choice. I'm, this is going to work. Um, and back then there was there wasn't much to um, to navigate even in terms of you know, money or success or anything like that. There wasn't a lot to split up because we didn't have much. We were, I was on the front end of my career. And I will say I, I should give some credit to the fact that um, early on, my former wife and I decided we wouldn't use the kids in this squabble. You know, I think that's a, a testament to her character and mine that um, we all get along pretty fantastically well. Um, it wasn't related to the business. It wasn't related to, you know, our, our not being together was not because I wanted to move to the big city and be a rock star or any of that stuff. It was very um, uh, deep kind of soul level breakup um, that was uh, navigable because we prioritized things, you know, the health of the kids and the, and the, 
the um, wanting them to be able to have the fullest life possible and have this not impact them was our, our highest priority, you know? And I think that has paid dividends based on the fact that they've, they've turned out extraordinary. I mean, I, my kids are great. Tell me about the work-life balance through that time period. What I would do back then, this is a, this is a while ago, so I'm trying to remember what the flow looked like. It looked like me basically living at the studio <laughs> in between uh, times that I had the kids. And when I had the kids, I, I got an apartment near the studio and um, I would spend my time with them, completely with them. So I kind of uh, went both directions. When I had the kids, I was all about them and we did everything together because I had a I had a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old uh, with a, and I had a third floor walk-up that I had to deal with. So even getting groceries was an adventure, you know, with just the four of us. But it was all about them and the times that I wasn't working. And the balance was when I didn't have them, I wasn't doing anything else. I was only making music. I don't know that it was super healthy, but it, it, uh, it allowed me to survive. And, and I think allowed them to thrive because I wasn't distracted when they were, when it was my time with them, you know. I think focus is a, a, an interesting trait that has a, a light and a shadow side, right? There's good things about being really focused on things. And there's a supreme negative. You know, if you're not in that focus beam in mm-hmm. my personal life, it, you feel it, you know, it, both ways. When you're in it, I'm all about it. I'm right in the moment and, and uh, able to focus on everything that we're doing in that moment. And so if it's the, the weekend with the kids, it's, that's all we're doing. Uh, I want to switch gears for a second, talk about something that is not one of my favorite things, snow. You have snow there. How do you maintain a healthy lifestyle in a place where it snows a big chunk of the year and uh, it's hard to get outside and get exercise? What What do you do to stay healthy? You're asking um, a guy who uh, loathes exercise this question. So as a preamble, I will put that out there. I, I don't okay. do anything for exercise other than... W- you know, walk sometimes. I'm really quite horrible at it. However, my wife is extremely active and loves to be out in uh, the elements and uh, doing all that stuff. The kids are active. I've got friends who are active. And I think the thing that allows people to live here successfully is the idea that there's no bad weather, just bad clothing, right? Like if you're prepared (laughs) for it, anything, anything is doable. Um, Having said that, I hate it. I hate it more than you do, probably. Uh, The snow or the exercise? Well, I do hate exercise, but snow in particular. I really, really detest winter. Um, It's been the biggest challenge about um, the living here, the uh, lifestyle of living living here, the commitment to being here. Um, That's a real challenge. And I think it's just a matter of being prepared and, and, and getting out. It's also not quite as bad as people make it out. It's, it's bad for you because you don't, you're not used to snow. And when I lived in LA, uh, I missed the seasons. I do like the change of seasons. Um, I just hate that it gets so horrible for three months. Like I love, uh, spring and fall are are beautiful. They're lovely. Um, and winter is, it sucks. It's the worst. (laughs) There's, there's no getting around it. Yeah, that's the that's the season I wish that we could all avoid. Yeah, there's people that love it, and I just look at them like, I don't understand how you're wired. It doesn't make any sense to me. Hey, before we wrap up our interview with Daniel Holter, I want to encourage you to stop on over to Audio Technica's website at audio-technica.com. Audio Technica helps make the working class audio podcast possible. And of course, they have plenty of microphones, headphones, and turntables, and even turntable cartridges. And you know I'm a big fan of ATHM40X headphones as well as the BP40 mic which I'm speaking to you on now and now you can even buy stuff right off the website at audio-technica.com so be sure and stop over there and uh, let's get back into the interview and uh, wrap it up with Daniel Holter here on the Working Class Audio Podcast There's so much going on in your world so this we're, we're going to have to kind of keep this at the 30,000 foot view but Tell me about your relationship with finances and are there any key mistakes you made in the past and what are the things that you're doing now that are, are correct or are, are good decisions? I think the best decision I've made in the last few years has been hiring a competent uh, bookkeeper. I think that's been absolutely vital 
recognizing that I'm really bad at it and getting a professional in place to fill in my blind spot is, uh, has been everything. That's been great. Um, I've had good tax uh, people for a long time, 10 or 15 years, but the just the day-to-day of keeping on top of things. I mean, I'm, I'm the guy that you could make a record with and I'll forget to invoice you. It's just, I'm not doing this for the invoice. You know, like I would do these projects for free. I did do these projects for free. I make, I love making records. So having somebody remind you that, you know, you need to pay bills this month and you know, you need to invoice for these jobs so we can get money to pay the bills. And then you remember that commitment you made three months ago when you said you were going to sell these three pieces of gear to pay for that one that you bought. Yeah. You didn't sell those three and you need to sell them so we can pay for this one that you bought. Um, Having somebody in place to remind me of that and keep me in check has is, is been really, really helpful. Um, and I said earlier, the um, uh, investing in quality tools is, is something I've never regretted. I'm actually a big proponent of uh, lease-to-own lease programs. So when I do um, upgrades with the studio, I'll very often put together a package uh, that is a lease package with like either a $1 or a 10% buyout at the end of it. Because it's really good for tax planning, you can write off uh, lease payments 100% as opposed to having to depreciate the gear. Um, So it really helps with my uh, tax scenario. Interesting. So uh, where does one turn to to do uh, a lease on, let's say I want to buy a set of monitors and a monitor controller. Sure. So where do you go to do that? I have done it usually through the vendors and any competent pro audio vendor will be able to hook you up with a leasing company, Um, Vintage King, Sweetwater, um, Full Compass here in Wisconsin. Um, In fact, I I don't know this, but I suspect they've got some sort of incentive to connect people with a certain leasing company. I mean, I think they've got relationships that are established for a reason. You know, they're like, hey, when we just like a, you know, credit card referral, they've got their own credit card programs. Um, And the other advantage to that is the lease is tied to my corporate finances, not my personal finances. So it's not another knock on my personal credit report. It's a uh, a line of credit established with my business history. One advantage to having a company that's been around for 23, 24 years is you've got Uh the ability to get access to funds that uh, don't impact your personal credit, which is a nice place to be. And your company is set up as what kind of a business entity? My main production company is an S-Corp. And then okay. I, I went and got, I set up a separate LLC to hold the real estate for the building that I have. Um, so I've got one company uh, basically paying rent to another company, which affords a lot of flexibility when it comes to um, tax planning. And, and also if, if I'm short in cash flow, one or the other, I can, you know, it allows you to move money back and forth pretty easily. Um, but it's, it's not a way to get away with anything because it's all, you know, filed with the, with the state and the federal taxes. It's all very... Uh, um, the numbers have to match up, you know, it's, it's, uh, but it's a, a, a powerful way to structure your financial life. I think to have an entity, if anybody that's listening to this, that hasn't formed a, at least an LLC, a single member LLC for their business interests, if they're still combining, in fact, you're asking me about things that I've learned in the past early on, I was combining personal finances and business finances. So, you know, 25 years ago, I just had my personal checkbook. I, was, I wasn't I was married yet. I was just doing all this stuff and just buying gear and taking income in, putting in my personal checking account. That's a, an early lesson that um, everybody should do immediately. If you're doing this work, it should be through an LLC, not least of which reasons is everything that you buy that is related to our industry then becomes a write-off and you pay for it with the LLC instead of per- your personal checking account. That's that's a big win. What do you do to better yourself? Whether it's in audio, in life, your outlook to uh, what are you doing on a daily basis to to keep you going forward? I feel such a strong sense of internal motivation, and and the creative impulse is so prominent. It's just never been it's never been a, a fight for me to want to get up and and do this and to try to win and try to get better. Um, I do think there are some things that I actively engage in that are not related to audio, uh, but are related to creativity. And by which I mean, I'm like, we were talking about actually food earlier. There's, it's a interest of mine, but I try to keep it to an interest because I want it to just inform the thing that I'm really good at. I'm not good at making any meals, really. I've got a couple things I can make, but I'm really interested in people that are good at it. I'm really interested in uh, stand-up comedy and watching people 
be that on and that fluid and make people laugh and how their acts develop over time. I'm really interested in uh, writing and, and reading great writers. And these are all things that I'm interested in enough only so that it informs my creative process in the studio. Um, and I think one of the things I'm getting better at is recognizing that we can't do everything that interests us if we want to be great at something. I think you can be good at a lot of stuff or great at one or two things. Um, and I'm, I have the challenge of being interested in a whole lot of different things. So I think the discipline to recognize that if I get too interested in these other things, they can become distractions for what the real goal is. And I really want to be great at making music. I really want to be a great mixer and a great producer. And I think keeping those blinders on and staying focused is, uh, while it is a part of my makeup. It's not that that much work for me. I do pay attention to it. I do actively check my blinders and just be like, you know, if I do that thing that's glinty and kind of uh, catching my attention over there, it, there's a zero sum game there. There's only so much time available. And so I'm trying to do just enough so that I'm well balanced and not a total ass at parties, you know, where I can't do anything but talk about myself. I love, <laughs> you know, you know, the type, right? Where that's like, I don't want to be that guy. So I try to be yeah. interested in some things that are not this because very few people want to talk about this at a party that doesn't involve other us, right? Like we're the only people uh -huh. that want to talk about this. I think being disciplined about the fact that recognizing the, the cost involved in um, taking on other things and, and prioritizing what I want my life to be about has been really helpful. I think that's been a part of uh, why I've been successful for 25 years. And, and um, I want to be better tomorrow. I think getting up every day and, and, and wanting tomorrow to be better than today is a, a regular part of my routine in the morning. Like, you know, how do I, how do I make today better than yesterday? Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. It's great to talk to you. Best of luck to you and continued success with the license lab and all your thank adventures. Thank you. I, I can't thank you enough. Your, your show is the number one resource I send people to when they're asking about this industry and what life is like in it. Uh, you're doing the Lord's work, my man. It's great. Thank you for being a part of that. Thanks. I it's been an it. honor. Thanks. Daniel Holter here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Another great episode down. Always good to hear another story. Really hear how someone uh, gets through adversity and really triumphs in the end. And it seems Daniel has done that. So I want to thank Daniel for coming on. I also want to thank Mike Wells for coming on to talk about his new download service, Swan. Also want to thank our sponsors, Gearslets.com, Audio Technica, Universal Audio, as well as Roswell Pro Audio. And there's the music. So we got to thank Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. And I always got to thank you all. I appreciate you listening to me week after week after week. Continue to do so. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.